the walls of this city will fall down flat. Go in the strength you have and save Israel. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight. You will shepherd my people. You will become their ruler. Tell I see that video, I think, man, I'm going to start reading the Bible. That sounds interesting, but I hope it has that impact on you guys. But we are in the fourth week of our series we're calling Origin Story. Welcome to the Promised Land. Again, this is actually a series that started a year ago, and I decided every year to go to five or six books of the Bible uh, to get an overview uh, of, of, those, of those books. And we began last year by calling it the Pentateuch. We looked at the first five books of the Bible, and we, we saw in Genesis how God said, I'm going to raise up a nation of people that's going to bless all the people of the earth, meaning that the Messiah was going to come through these Hebrew people. And so last year, we kind of traced the beginning of the Jewish nation. We chased them, uh, traced them through the Exodus and through Leviticus, where they learned how to worship God, uh, through Numbers, because they didn't trust God and go to the Promised Land. They wandered in the desert. Moses brought them back to the Promised Land, to the Jordan River, and, and that's where we left them. We left them hanging right there. And now we're taking them into the promised land in this part of the series. We've looked at the book of Joshua and Judges. Last weekend we looked, we looked at Ruth. And this week we've come to the ninth book of the Bible, 1 Samuel. And in this book we're introduced to three very familiar Bible characters. If you grew up in church, you went to Sunday school. One's name is Samuel. The next one's name is Saul, who will become King Saul. And then there's David, who will become King David. By the way, next week we're going to see that David was so significant to God... That God, that God actually dedicated an entire book to his life. We'll look at that next week, 2 Samuel. But this weekend I want to begin by introducing you to the person that 1 Samuel is named afterwards, and uh, named after, and who is that? It is Samuel. Good, good, you guys, you guys brought your A game this week. His name is Samuel. He's a godly guy, he's a unique guy. Even the story of his birth is unique. He had a mom, her name was Hannah. Hannah could not conceive, she couldn't get pregnant, and it was probably the worst stigma possible for a Jewish woman at this time in Jewish history. She couldn't get pregnant, she couldn't conceive. And so she prayed and she said, God, listen, if you'll give me a son, that's all I'm asking, if you'll just give me a son, I will in turn give my son back to you and he will serve you his entire life. And guess what? God granted her request. And, and you can see what happened, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 24. After he, Samuel, was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah, a flower, a skin of wine. So in other words, she's going to go to the house of God. She's prepared to make a sacrifice. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. So Hannah does exactly as she promised. She literally gives Samuel back to God. And he goes to the house of God. He, he goes to the place of the tabernacle and he lives with Eli, who is the high priest. By the way, just so you know, every once in a while you will hear us talk about or announce that we're going to have a baby dedication. This is where the concept of a baby dedication actually comes from. 
It's not just so you can get your kid dressed up and have a great, you know, picture moment, you know, photo moment, photo op with the whole family. That's not really what it's for. It's not about your kid being saved. In other words, it doesn't guarantee you that your child's going to go to heaven. Your child is going to have to grow up and make that decision to respond to the gospel that Jesus Christ died for their sins. And and that's the only way they're going to get into heaven. That's the only way they're going to have eternal life. That's the only way that they can live the life that God designed for them to live. Your children are going to have to make that decision on their own. Children, really, the baby dedications are parents saying, I realize that my child is a gift from God. That this child is on loan to me for God. And then I dedicate my child back to God. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean that we release the responsibility of training and rearing and disciplining our children. That doesn't mean that. In fact, uh, Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, train up a child in the way he shall go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. It's an interesting verse there if you take it apart. Uh, The words train up was actually a Hebrew word that was used to describe the midwives, the Jewish midwives. After a Jewish woman would have a baby, the midwife would take the baby, dip her fingers in some dates, rub the gums of the child. The child would begin to do the sucking motion and she would then give the child back to the mom to nurse. So that's the idea of training up a child, creating a thirst, creating a desire. So train up a child in the way they should go. And that's a colloquialism, a Hebrew colloquialism for an archer taking an arrow, putting it in a bow and putting it toward a target. And that's what we do as parents. We create a thirst, a hunger for the principles, the truths, the precepts of God. We get to know our children in such a way. We understand what God created them to do, what their gifts, what their abilities, what their bench are. And we raise them up. And at the right time, we release them toward the target that God has designed for them. We give them back to God. But see, for that to happen emotionally, we have to realize, you know, early on, wow, this child actually belongs to God. God has put him as a plant. I love how uh, Proverbs or Psalms talks about it. Around my table. It's my job to prepare this child for the calling. Not that I have, not that I want him to be a great soccer player, not that I want him to go to medical school. It's not about me. What is it that God has gifted this child to do? And by the way, every week when your kids go home, if you're wondering how you can train up a child, uh, there's stuff like this that your kids bring home. All kinds of, men, this is not just to irritate you because they end up in the floorboard of the car. Parents, these are for you because you can actually take these home and there's something you can do every day of the week with your child. That would be part of training up your child. What if we were as committed to our children spiritually, making sure they understood the principles and the precepts and the word of God as we were to making sure they got to soccer practice? Or we were to make sure they got the gymnastic practice or dance rehearsal or whatever it is, right, right. That's the, that's the challenge that God has given us. Now, we learned this from the book of Samuel. This is what's going on in Samuel's life, literally. Hannah literally took him and said, God, I promise to give my child back to you. Here he is. And I know what some of you are thinking, like, well, how cool is that? I mean, what a great environment that must have been to live with Eli, the high priest, at the house of the Lord, the tabernacle. In, I mean, he's right there where the Ark of the Covenant is. How cool is that, right? But look what it says in chapter 2, verse 22. Now, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they, look at this, slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meetings. That's the tabernacle. So his boys, when the women are working there, hey, they're, they're sleeping with them, right? Now, notice how Eli handles it in chapter 2, verse 23. He said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. But if you read it, he doesn't do anything about it. He just said, I've heard, I've heard. He doesn't put them in timeout. 
Didn't do that. My, my dad did knockout. I told you guys, my dad said, I will knock you in the middle of next week. And there were, I missed whole weeks of my life. I wake up. But I told you, one my dad would, I, I never understood. He said, hey, my dad said, I will beat you to your rear end won't hold shut. I don't know what that meant, but I, I envisioned me walking around with my butt cheeks doing this. You know what I'm saying? I, I didn't want to do that, right? So my dad had my attention, right? But he didn't do that. He didn't spank him. He didn't put a t- he didn't say, give me the keys to the camel. You're not, you know, you, you can't drive the camel. He didn't do any of that. He just says, hey, I hear what's going on, but he does nothing about it. And so God informs Samuel what he's going to do to the family of Eli. Chapter 3, verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, see, I am about to do something in Israel. I love this phrase. That will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. By the way, let me just say something. I think that parents can, that, 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 that kids can forgive their parents of just about anything except inconsistent standards. See, this is what your kids need to know. Your kids need to know that is what is right today, according to God's word, is right forever. What is wrong today will be wrong forever because God's word never changes. It doesn't matter if culture changes. It doesn't matter what's politically correct. According to God's word, his principles, his precepts, his truth. Hey, what's right will always be right. What's wrong will always be wrong. Hey, parents, that's your job. It's not my job, it's not the church's job, it's not the staff of Kid City, it's not your kid's small group. That is your job. Now, how you enforce that standard is going to change as your kid grows and gets older and matures. But I'm telling you, they need to know early on what's permitted and what's not permitted. Now, I'm just going to give you a little heads up. This fall, I'm doing a family series, and in it, I am going to, I'm going to get out there on the limb, and I'm going to talk about children. I'm going to talk about what the Bible says about disciplining our children, but I'll give you a little preview. Kids that don't have boundaries, strong boundaries in their life, they grow up with tremendous insecurities. Tremendous insecurities. Eli knew what was going on with his boys. He just chose not to do anything about it. He chose not to set any Boundaries, But this is what I want you to see. I want you to see that in spite of this horrible environment that Samuel got dropped into, Samuel remained pure. Samuel remained godly. And I want to mention that because we have a lot of sociologists out there who are the experts who like to tell us that we are doomed to become a product of our environment. But this is what's interesting. Regardless of Samuel's environment, Samuel walked with God. He stayed true to God. However, there is an area of weakness. He's human. He's human. There is an area of weakness that emerges in Samuel's life. When you get to chapter 8, Samuel is now an adult. He's been ministering to the nation of Israel, impacting the nation of Israel. They're growing maybe for the very first time to love God more and more and more and more and more. But in the latter part of Samuel's life, something happens. You get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as leaders, as Israel's leaders. So Samuel, like, I don't think it's that unusual, had the dream that maybe his boys would carry on in his place. I would love it if that's what God called my boys to do. I don't think that's it. But maybe it's a family business for you. You would love nothing more than your kids to have the passion for what you do and to carry it on. Maybe that's all it is. But the problem is this, chapter 8, verse 3, his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. By the way, let me say one other thing. There is no guarantee 
that godly parents are going to have godly children. This is what I've learned. If you got three, one of them's going to give you grief. In fact, I was talking to a neighbor, three of the most beautiful girls. I said, one of them's going to break your heart. And I can think I can tell you which one it is right now. But anyway, you know, I'll also say more about that this fall, right? But chapter 8, verse 4 says this. All the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And in those verses, you actually find three reasons why they wanted to change from a theocracy, meaning being ruled by God, to a monarchy being ruled by a king. Three reasons. Here's the first one. Samuel's getting old. He can't carry on. Second, Samuel's sons, they weren't qualified to replace him. Third, maybe saddest of all. Israel just wanted to be like all the other nations. See, they would go see the other nations like, wow, they got a king you can see. They're tired of the you know, neighboring nations saying, where's your king? Oh, we got a king. Well, where is he? Um, you can't see him. He's invisible. He's invisible. Yeah. Well, where does he live? Where's his palace? Oh, he doesn't live in a palace. He, he lives in a box. We, we call it an ark. But basically God in a box, you know. And they've kind of been explaining this for years. And like, man, we want a king. We want a king that lives in a palace. We want a king that we can see wearing a robe and a crown. We want a real king. Well, it broke Samuel's heart. In fact, he's disgusted by the request. So he goes to God, chapter 8, verse 6, when they said this, give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. By the way, that's a great way to deal with people when they disgust you. Don't go talking to everybody else about it. Just go tell God. Tell God on them. I mean, a couple of things. One, he won't tell anybody else. Two, he'll give you wisdom how to deal with the situation. So Samuel's just not happy. And he says, man, I resent that they're asking for a king. But notice what it says in chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord told them, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you, Samuel, they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. Hey, Samuel, don't lose perspective. You're just a judge. I'm the king. They don't want me as a king. They actually want an earthly king. Verse 9, chapter 8. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so in the next several verses, Samuel basically says to the people, hey, you want a king? You really want a king? Well, if you want a king, there are some things that you should know about having a king. Chapter 8, verse 11. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, others to plow his ground, reap his harvest, still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Not only that, verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage. That means your wine. Now it's getting serious, right? And give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants, the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourself will become his slaves. In other words, a king, interject politician, going to rip you off. They're going to rip you off. But you see the people's response in chapter 8, verse 19. The people refused to listen to Samuel. Samuel, no, they said, we want a king we want a king over us. And you know what God said? Fine. You want a king? Give him a king. And it's interesting, they chose a guy that was very, very impressive. Uh, I mean, if you're going by the external, Saul, 
Welcome, meet Saul. Saul is your guy. Chapter 9, verse 1, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anybody else. He is tall, dark, I bet he's handsome. I mean, he's, he's just got it all going on, right? Just the kind of guy, see, you want your daughter to marry if you're basing it just on externals. In fact, when Samuel told Saul, guess what, you're the people's choice, notice how he responded, chapter 9, verse 21. Are you kidding me? Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? And, and understand, he's not just playing humble. He was actually humble. In fact, you can read it on your own, and I hope you do go back and read these books. When it was time for him to be crowned as king, they couldn't find him. He was so shy, he was hiding. They had to go find him. He was truly, truly humble. But not only was he humble, he was also courageous. And not only was he courageous, he was incredibly organized. You can see that in chapter 11. A war breaks out. Notice how Saul handles it, chapter 11, verse 11. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Look at this. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. I mean, Saul went and just blew them up. And you know what the people are thinking? Yep, we're right. That's our guy. That's the man we want. He should be the king. He should lead our nation. And so with a broken heart, Samuel crowned Saul as the first king of Israel. And at this point in, in the book of 1 Samuel is a transition book because we're transitioning from the judges. Samuel was the last judge into the kings. And so he crowns Saul as the first king of Israel of Israel and national trust is at the highest level it has ever been. But understand, it's not because of this new king, it's because of this old judge. Because Samuel had faithfully performed his duties for God. But now they have a king. And now things begin to change. In chapter 13, Saul begins to show his true colors. And he makes three major mistakes. Let me show them to you. First of all, in chapter 13, uh, Saul needs to make a sacrifice before they go to battle, right? But he's supposed to wait for Samuel because not only is he the judge, he is also the priest. So he's supposed to wait for Samuel because only the priest can offer up a sacrifice, not a king. But they've never had a king before, so Saul thinks he can do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't want to wait. In fact, you're going to see one thing about Saul. He's very impulsive. He's very impatient. He's very rash. He, he kind of overreacts. And so Samuel's not around, and he's tired of waiting. He says, hey, give me the sacrifice. He sets fire to the sacrifice. It goes up in smoke. Samuel shows up a few minutes later and he says, what the heck is going on? What are you doing? And Saul responds, you know what? I waited and I waited and I waited. And I didn't know if you were coming or not, so I just decided to take care of it myself. And Samuel looked him right in the eye and said, let me tell you something, buddy. You're a king. You're not a priest. Don't ever do this again. But I'm telling you, I am guessing that Samuel's stomach nodded up as he realized, hmm, this isn't the guy. Mistake number two, chapter 14, a war breaks out and things go really, really bad for Israel. The battle is raging. Israel is not winning the battle. And so Saul, I told you he was rash. He makes a rash, impulsive decision. He says, nobody eats anything until we win. But Saul has a son named Jonathan. Jonathan's a soldier. He's in the middle of the battle. He's hungry. While he's out in the battlefield, he comes across a honeycomb, gets some of the honeycomb, he eats it, Word gets back to Saul that Jonathan, his son, ate some honeycomb, and Saul tries to kill his son, Jonathan. Now, fortunately, 
someone restrains him. But let me ask you a question. How would you like to have a leader like that? Third mistake, chapter 15. God says, Saul, listen, you're going to go and you're going to attack the Amalekites and kill everything. Kill the king, kill the people, kill the sheep, kill the goats, kill the cattle, kill everything. You say, why would God do that? I don't know. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But that's what he told Saul. But Saul doesn't follow. He doesn't obey. One, he keeps the king. Why would he keep the king? Because in those days, that's what you did. When you, when you overthrew a nation, you took their king. You put a rope around his neck. You paraded him down Main Street. You let everybody know, I'm the dude. I'm the dude that took down the amount. And see, that's, that's what's going on. So he keeps the king, but he also keeps some sheep and some cattle. So you get to chapter 15, verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Well, not really. I mean, go back to the book of Judges. Do you remember the principle we learned there? Incomplete obedience is really nothing more than complete disobedience. There is no gray area. You either do what God says or you don't do what God says. If you don't do what God says totally, it's disobedience. And so it, he says, no, no, wait, I, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel said, wait, 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 what is that? What's that bleeding I hear in my ear? What's, what's that cattle that I hear, right? Saul answered the soldiers. Good soldiers are hard to find these days. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the, now look at this, they spared the best of the sheep and cattle. It was so noble to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. And I tell you what, Samuel, God's going to be glad we kept some of those sheep and cattle. Because when we offer up some of that sheep and he smells that mutton, whoo, or smells some of that prime rib, you know, going up, he's going to be so happy we did this, right? And this sets up one of the greatest biblical principles you will ever hear in your life. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, this is what Samuel says. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? In other words, what's God more interested in? That you show up at church on the weekend, that you sing, that you lift your hands, that you worship, but you live like a hellion all week. Or is he more concerned about your obedience Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? See, I'm telling you, from God's perspective, obedience is the highest form of worship. In fact, Samuel goes on to say, to obey is better than sacrifice. You could put worship there. To obey is better than worship. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, you could put disobedience there. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. Your translation may say witchcraft. That's harsh. And arrogance or pride, like the evil of idolatry. Now notice what he says. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And so God says through Samuel to Saul, uh, Saul, listen, um, you're not the guy. And you're not the guy because you don't follow orders. You're not the guy because you don't obey. And so just so you know, God has rejected you from being king of Israel. Your days are numbered. You're through because God wants somebody who's going to obey him. By the way, let me just say, Saul made the classic leadership mistake. He thought that God chose him to be king because he was so talented, because he was so good looking, because he had such great leadership skills. And so naturally, when he got into the role, he relied on his talent, his abilities, his great leadership skills to get things done. And in the process, he screwed everything up. So now we come to the point in the story where God is frustrated 
with Saul, and he decides, you know what, it's time for a new king. And the very next chapter, you get to 1 Samuel chapter 16. God tells Samuel, Samuel, listen to what I want you to do. I need you to go down to Bethlehem. I need you to find the house of Jesse. And when you get there, knock on the door, introduce yourself, tell Jesse you want all of his boys to line up. They're going to stand in front of you, and I'm going to let you know which one of those boys is going to be the next king of Israel. Samuel does exactly as God says, right? Jesse has all of his boys line up. Now keep in mind, you know, these boys, they don't have any idea what's going on. But Samuel knows that standing in front of him, one of these boys is going to be the next king of Israel. So you get to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely, wow, the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. In other words, he sees Eliab and Samuel thinks, wow, this is the biggest no-brainer in the history of Israel. This young man obviously is God's choice to be king. I mean, just look at the guy. He looks like a king. I think a little man crush going on maybe with Samuel here. But it says in verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Not as a person, but as the king. Now, here's the principle. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. I tell you what, one day reading through the book of Samuel, saw that verse, it blew up in my mind. It ended up me writing a book. You can't, God can. You can get it through the office or Amazon.com. But let me tell you why this is such an important principle. It's important because what often causes us to question whether or not God can do us to do any, use us to do anything significant for him or use us greatly in his kingdom is because we evaluate our standard, ourselves by a standard that God never established. So I'm promising you this, the criteria for usefulness in the kingdom of God is totally different than the criteria for usefulness in the kingdom of man. And do you know why? Look what the verse tells us. God doesn't look at the things that man looks at. God isn't impressed by the same things that impress us. In other words, if you're sitting here this weekend, weekend and you're thinking, man, whew, I am going to do some great things for God because I am so talented. And I have such great ability. God's like, eh, Wrong. Or if you're sitting here thinking, you know what, I'm never going to do anything significant for God because I don't have any great abilities and I don't have any great talents. God's thinking, eh, wrong. Now, understand, God appreciates those things. If you have gifts and talents and abilities, God gave them to you. But when it comes to being used by God, I'm promising you this, those things are pretty much irrelevant. Because those are the kind of things that impress us. Those are the kind of things that impress people on planet Earth. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, a whole different standard. So you get to verse 8 and said, then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse's like, well, I mean, yeah, they're still the youngest. I mean, I got snot nose. He's like 12 years old. You're not interested in him. He's out there taking care of the sheep. And I'm not even sure he's qualified to do that. Right, right. I'm pretty sure it's not him. This is what I recommend, Samuel. Let me line the boys up again, walk in front of them again. Maybe you missed something, right? But look what C says. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, meet David. And had him brought in, he was glowing with health, had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. By the way, when you think about it, Jesse and Samuel, they were just like us. See, they just assume 
that the future king had to look a certain way. He had, he had to act a certain way. Uh, he had incredible education, great resume. But God says, yeah, that's not really what I'm looking for. That's what, not what determines a person's usefulness to me. And later on, and we'll see this especially next week as we look at the life of David in 2 Samuel, what you're going to see is that God was looking for someone who had a certain kind of heart. A certain kind of heart. So Samuel anoints David to be the next king of Israel. Through a series of circumstances, uh, David ends up working in Saul's court. Uh, he becomes an intern, kind of like a KIT, king in training. You know, and, and he's learning all the protocol of, of being the king. This is what's cool. The government's picking up a tab. I mean, you can't beat a deal like that. So God has David in training to be the next king of Israel. But Saul doesn't know that. So you get to chapter 17, it's that familiar story of David and Goliath, and I'm not going to rehearse the story, but you know it, you know, the Philistine warrior, the giant, nobody would take him on. David shows up with his little picnic basket for his brothers. Like, why are you guys letting that uh, uncircumcised Philistine just uh, verbally abuse you and God, you know? They're like, well, nobody, David's like, I'll fight him. I'll fight, I'll cut his head, I'll slice his throat so fast he won't know it till he sneezes, right? Let me up, right? Remember that? And so David gets his little slingshot and goes out there and takes him on and boom, you know, you know, great, great. By, by the way, according to archaeologists, uh, based on what they have found, uh, the historians and the archaeologists in Israel, based on Goliath's armor, David had little to no chance of sinking that shot. And if you ever go with me to Israel, you'll see the museums where you'll see, you'll see a helmet there. There's about a two to three square inch area where Goliath was, was vulnerable. And the odds of some kid making that shot with a slingshot was slim to none. David did his part. God showed up, did the supernatural part, made sure that stone hit exactly where it needed to hit so that it would kill Goliath. And sure enough, David cut his head off and went back to Saul and said, look what I found. You know, he's gone. He's gone, right? Great story. But what I want you to see is after the victory, oh, the nation of Israel, they're jacked up, right? Because this standoff had been going for 40 days. And so the ladies of Israel write a song. And not only do they write the song, they go out in the streets and they sing the song. And Saul overhears the singing in chapter 18, verse 7. As they dance, they sing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Uh-oh, that's, that's 9,000 off, right? Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but my kingdom? He wants my kingdom. That's obvious what's going on, right? Now, now you start to see Saul's real character emerge because here's David. He's just, he's just shown himself strong. He's proved himself to be incredibly faithful and loyal to Saul. And Saul decides that he is going to reward David by killing him. Chapter 18, verse 10, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. And you may remember I talked about that in our spiritual warfare series. He was prophesying in the house while David was playing the lyre. It's just another word for a harp. As he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. And now the, state, the chase starts. And David is forced into hiding. And if my math is right, uh, David runs for his life for about 14 years while Saul's army hunts him down trying to kill him. As a result, David lives like an animal in the mountains, in the caves of En Gedi. Some of you in November, you will be with me in Israel. We will walk through the hills into the caves of En Gedi. And it's amazing to think this may be a cave you know, where David wrote some of his best stuff. Where he, this may be the cave where David cut off Saul's robe. I mean, incredible stories. But, but, it, it, but it's there. This is what I want you to know. It's there in En Gedi, 
hiding in those caves, running for his life, where David writes some of his best stuff. Some of our favorite Psalms came from this time when David was running from Saul, which brings this principle into play. We often produce some of our best work for God during life's hardest times because that's when we're most dependent on him. Let me tell you something. God does not waste tough times. And you can see that in the life of David. When you get to chapter 28, all hell breaks loose against Saul. It's now very, very clear that his reign as king, as king is soon going to end. Uh, Samuel has died. So Saul feels like he doesn't have a, a, a priest, a mentor to talk to. And so you know what he does? He, he turns to a medium when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 7. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium. Your translation may say witch. So I may go and inquire of her. So Saul uses this medium to try to have a conversation to contact dead Samuel, right? And when this happened, God's like, I ain't playing that game. Enough is enough. It's time for Saul's life to end. In fact, it tells us in 1 Chronicles that this, this is why Saul died, because he went to this medium. And sure enough, a battle breaks out with Israel up against their dreaded enemy, the Philistines. And it says in 1 Samuel 31, verse 2, the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. He committed suicide. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. But don't stop reading. I want, you to, I want you to see what Saul's suicide did for the cause of the Philistines. Chapter 31, verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. They cut off Saul's head, stripped him of his armor. They sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Asherahs. And they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. One of the places when we go to Israel, we walk through the ruins, probably the most incredible ruins that you'll even see in Israel is the city of Beth Shan. And every time I walk through there, I think about this is where it all came to an end for Saul. And as they walked by these Philistines, they saw the headless body of the once great King Saul. It is incredible how Saul's life disintegrated and eroded. I find three lessons in this great book of 1 Samuel, one from the life of Samuel, one from the life of Saul, and one from the life of David. Here's the one from Samuel. No environmental handicap can cripple anyone whose life is touched by the hand of God. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what, how dysfunctional your family or your family environment is. No environmental handicap can cripple anyone whose life is touched by the hand of God. You know the kind of staff I like? I like the kind of staff here at Hope where their life's been a mess. We got some staff. They haven't had a mess yet. But I've met their kids. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. But our senior high director at the Raleigh campus has one of those stories. And I love to hear these kinds of stories. It proves this point. Watch the side screen. There was a burden lifted 
that I had been carrying around, the shame that I had been carrying around that I was free from. My name is Wade Harris, and I am the high school pastor for the Raleigh campus. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I had parents who were very involved in the church. I was one of those kids that was at church four or five nights a week. My parents didn't have to force me to do it. You know, I enjoyed doing it. Around high school, I started to get a little bit of freedom. You know, I'm having sex, I'm smoking weed, I'm drinking, and just started making some, some bad decisions. My girlfriend at the time, she got pregnant, and we were concerned just about her future. She was gonna be the first one in her family to go to college. And uh, we made the decision for her to get an abortion. I never thought I'd be forgiven for that. And in college, I pretty much wasn't going to church. And uh, that's when I started to learn how to DJ. When you're DJing, you're kind of the, like the center of, of what's happening. You're almost encouraging people to get drunk. You're saying things on the microphone, encouraging people to you know, find somebody and take them home and do whatever that night. You know, I would come home from doing like these huge events, like just huge concerts, you know, just rock the club. And I remember I just came home and I was just empty. And I just started crying and I didn't even understand why. But it's just like my soul didn't have peace. I just got to a point through that process that I realized my relationship with God is more important than my relationships with my friends. And a really good friend of mine, he gave me a book called Revelations. Mace had everything that I was trying to acquire. He had money, he had power, he had respect, and he seemed to have a certain freedom. But what I learned in reading the book is that he actually didn't have freedom. That was why he <laughs> decided to follow the Lord. I had seen him in the MCI Center doing a concert, 20,000 people to see him in an elementary school cafeteria in front of 20 people teaching the Word of God and saying, this is my new life. That really, resonated with my spirit. I just, I, I had to do what I knew God was calling me to do. And when God is calling you, 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 if you don't answer, your life becomes even more rocky. I immediately started serving because I felt a freedom. Like I felt like, man, I got a new lease on life and now I can help other people. What God had me in was a discipleship period, you know, where I could really get poured into, plugged into a local church and serving there, and then eventually he would release me, and that's what he did. I slowly got introduced to the Christian music industry. In 2006, I started a podcast promoting Christian music, and I did that for about 12 years while I was also doing youth ministry. High schoolers in general are dealing with now drugs, peer pressure, sex, alcohol. I went through that. So I'm kind of in a space where I can say, hey, look, I made these mistakes, I don't mind sharing my testimony so that you don't have to have that same testimony. I want you to have a testimony, but I want your testimony to be God kept you. I think before when I was in the world, I, I didn't have peace. And I have a greater sense of peace and joy when I'm seeing other people grow and develop in the Lord. When you can kind of be a part of that process, I mean, that's to me, that's living. That's living for real. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that cool? I'm telling you, God is greater than any environment. Samuel was raised in a cesspool, but he walked with God. Let me tell you something. Your past does not disqualify you from doing great things for God. I mean, your past, what you think disqualifies you, 
may be the very thing that God uses significantly for his glory. Here's the second thing, and we get it from Saul. No amount of qualifications can save anyone who willfully disobeys God. And I say that because some of you, I'm going to be honest with you, you, you're pretty sure you got it together. You got life wired. You got it figured out. You got the right job, live in the right neighborhood, drive the right kind of car. You got it figured out. But I'm telling you, if you walk against God, I don't care how impressed your neighbors are with you or how impressed people are at work with you, it will mean absolutely nothing. We saw how quickly life, Saul's life disintegrated because he thought he could do life his way. From David we learn, when God wants to use you to do great things, if you'll do your part, he will show up and do the supernatural part. Do you know what that means? It means that God has the power to take care of what you want and not even what you want, what you need to happen in your life right now. It could be your career. It could be your marriage that's a disaster, some other relationship. It could be your finances, and, and you want God to so desperately do something, or maybe you, just, maybe you just want God to use you. God has the power. He has the power to do what you want, what you need to happen in your life right now. You know what he may be waiting for? He may be waiting for you to do your part. And it's very possible that God already has a David prepared for the Goliath that you're facing in your life right now. But it's also very, very possible that the Goliath in your story is you. And without you even knowing it, God's been preparing you for the battle that you're facing right now. But he's waiting for you to do your part. So you have to ask yourself, what is my part? In that relationship, in my marriage, in my finances, what is it that I know is I have to take this first step? Because I've learned a long time ago, until we take the first step, God will never show up and do his part. If he's nudging you, do you trust him enough to move and to see what happens? Father, we thank you that you are a God who is intimately involved in our lives. And we see from these three characters, Samuel and Saul and David, at the end of the day, you're ready to do whatever's necessary, but we have to do our part. I pray for those right now who feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, there is no hope. Father, encourage them that they may very well be the David, that you're preparing to slay the giant, but they've got to do their part. Help us to be obedient, to follow you, to walk by faith, and learn to trust you with the outcome. And I know that you will do great things in our lives. For those that are here this weekend and they're still depending on their own resourcefulness and talent, and gift in this. Father, in some way, humble them. In some way, bring them to their knees so that they realize what they really need desperately is you. To be in a relationship with you that's been made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. You've done your part there also, but we have to do our part. We give you the credit for what you're gonna do in your name we pray, amen.